0: Welcome to this episode of Test Podagogy. My guests today are Essie Veeding, Professor of Developmental Psychopathology at UCL, and Eamon McCrory, Professor of Developmental Neuroscience and Psychopathology at UCL. Together they run the Developmental Risk and Resilience Unit at UCL, which focuses on early adversity and behavioural problems in childhood. Welcome both. Thank you. Shall we start with an overview of the work of the unit, uh, what you set it up to do and what you look at?
1: Well, I think this is something I think we can both contribute to because in a way the work of the unit is split into two different strands. We're really interested broadly in how mental health problems emerge in children and adolescents and the underlying mechanisms that might be associated with that emergence. And the two main strands are really looking at the impact of trauma and early adversity and then the emergence of conduct problems and antisocial behavior. So I really focus in, in my research um, working collaboratively with Essie on the impact of trauma and early adversity. And we really want to understand the ways in which those experiences impact the child's developing brain, but also their uh, developing mind in ways that might increase risk for later mental health vulnerability.
2: Okay. And I lead the strand of research that focuses on development of conduct problems, which is another word for behavioral problems and antisocial behavior in children. Um, and again we work collaboratively on this strand of research as well and we're particularly interested in multiple different developmental pathways to behavioral problems so one common outcome of uh, early adversity is increased risk of behavioral problems but we also see some children who don't always have the obvious um, early trauma that might result in behavioral problems and who, who may be at a greater Biological vulnerability for developing behavioural problems. And of course, in many children, you have both uh, biological risk factors and environmental risk factors that co occur to increase their risk of maladaptive outcomes.
0: That's, that's quite interesting. Do you find that children might be genetically predisposed to having uh, conduct problems, behavioural problems, because you were looking for? at the children who were having those problems and looking for trauma and not finding any, or, or which came first in the, in the research? How did you find these children that might be predisposed to having behavioral problems because of something in their in their biology?
2: Well, um, some time ago now, um, I worked collaboratively with uh, researchers at King's College London, who run a big twin register there, and we were interested in just understanding whether genetic or environmental factors explained um, differences in the level of conduct problems between those children who presented that way and those who didn't. And we were particularly interested in a group of children who have so-called callous and emotional traits. So these are children who lack empathy and ability to feel guilt. and uh, We compared this group of children to those who had conduct problems but w- which were more impulsive and reactively aggressive in nature. And what our research found was that the two groups appeared different in the origin of their conduct problems. So the group with higher levels of callous and emotional traits uh, appeared to be more genetically vulnerable to developing conduct problems, whereas the um, other group uh, seemed to have higher uh, environmental risk component to their conduct problems. Now this doesn't mean that the children who have callous and emotional traits are somehow genetically destined to become antisocial, nor does it mean that the other group has no genetic risk whatsoever. But the relative importance of genetic versus environmental risk factors uh, can be different for children who present slightly differently in terms of their behavioural problems.
0: Do the the behaviour problems, whether it be from trauma or from um, traits, I've forgotten the phrase, sorry, um, do do the behaviour manifestations tend to be the same?
2: There are some commonalities and some differences. So both groups can be aggressive, both groups can be impulsive, but the group with callous and emotional traits can uh, be very premeditated in their aggression and can often be more purposefully cruel than um, the other group of children. So
0: less, they less need a trigger, is, is
2: that? Uh, or, or they may plan something um, aggressive or unpleasant in order to get something that, that they want and they are often um, manipulative of other children or of teachers. Now, th- I really do want to emphasise that uh, these children may also have a history of trauma, mm. which could have exasperated uh, the genetic vulnerabilities. So it is not that they are born a particular way, but they are born at a higher risk of, of developing.
0: And when we're talking about
2: trauma, problems.
0: It w- is this, is this a, sc- a spectrum? Do people really, I mean, is trauma one trauma for one person? worse than for another person, even if the trauma stimulus is the same. How, how do you sort of
1: classify <laughs> that's, a really, that's a few questions in yeah. one. I, I think, yeah, tr- trauma is a continuum, absolutely. So we look at what many people might be familiar with as common childhood adversity, so physical, sexual, emotional abuse, neglect, exposure to domestic violence. So those are all re- on this kind of severe scale of, of kind of trauma and adversity. But there are other kinds of adversities, you know, being in a car crash or having your parents separate or divorce, you know, and at, much, at a much milder end. So there's a, a real continuum, but we, we focus on those that can be documented and known to be um, um, severe in terms of longer term outcome. And you're right, you're kind of hinting there might different children respond differently. There's preliminary evidence to show that there's differential genetic susceptibility to different kinds of of, of trauma and that some children may be more or less genetically um, vulnerable or resilient. Uh, But we're still at quite an early stage of understanding that kind of differential response. By and large, if you experience trauma at that um, more severe end, you know, it's not good. It's not good. It forces a child to have to try and cope, um, to try and um, respond, to those experiences and ways that they are able to adapt and regulate um, their uh, emotions and and social and behavioural functioning in order to survive.
0: Does it matter at what age that trauma happens?
1: There's evidence that uh, yeah, younger it's 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 the impact is is more severe. So there's evidence from longitudinal studies where um, of kids who've been um, institutionalised, for example, that. The first two years are particularly uh, salient and, uh, and sensitive in terms of um, the exposure to early adversity. But the, the depth of evidence is surprisingly um, absent in the field. You'd imagine that there's more evidence around sensitive periods. What's tricky is that often these um, adversities co-occur. And uh, they rarely happen simply in isolation. And there's un- it's unusual to have a start point and an end point in a very discreet way. You know, so somebody might experience something at two and then again at five and, you know, so these things are often related to the system around the child not functioning well and therefore the risk is likely to be protracted rather than specific to a particular point in time.
0: I was going to ask, actually, next question is, is an ongoing trauma worse than a single event?
1: There's there's evidence, absolutely, that um, duration matters and that um, protracted trauma, for example, is, is thought to lead to a, a kind of a down regulation of your stress response system and your cortisol response, um, which is believed to be implicated in the emergence of later depression, for example. So, so yes, the, I mean, as you would imagine, if something is happening earlier, you're less um, developed in being able to find coping strategies to, to, to deal with it. And if it's longer, it's going to have a more sustained impact.
2: And of course, if it's longer, it's also a signal there's something in that child's social ecology that is very ill-equipped to protect that child. So a single event trauma uh, that doesn't happen again indexes that here is something that is perhaps unpredictable, but the child has a social system around them that helps them uh, cope with that traumatic event. Whereas if a child is subjected to prolonged trauma, that is a very clear index that the adults in that child's lives are not protecting and looking after that child in a way that is developmentally typical.
0: And you, you've mentioned on, on the website and, and in our chat beforehand that these manifestations of that stress or that trauma can, can be delayed and can manifest at different times in a school environment or you know, a teacher might not know that something happened when that child was two and mm-hmm. not attach something that happened at seven or think well, that was ages ago, but mm-hmm. that can still yeah. affect.
1: Yeah, I think, I think there are two things here, really. One is the way in which the impact of adversity forces a child to adapt in ways that will help them cope in a, an environment that's chaotic or unpredictable. And those adaptations we see occurring in terms of their autobiographical memory functioning, their threat processing, their reward processing. Specific neurocognitive systems seem to calibrate to allow the child to cope in those environments um, in ways that are helpful. But then once the child moves into school, um, if they're, for example, hypervigilant to threat because they grew up in a house where there was domestic violence, you know, they're more likely to over-attribute hostility, for example, and get into fights and and possibly make it harder for them to um, cultivate peer relationships and stable friendships that could be protective. So there's, there's a whole bunch of, of ways in which that early adversity plays out over time because, as you say, that can happen much further down the line. Yeah. But then the other part of your question is is the way in which somebody perceives a child's behaviour and tries to make sense of it. So often an adult will see a child playing up in a classroom and and they're just misbehaving, they're just being provocative. And we are just born to make automatic computations about what that child's behaviour might mean. And if you don't have a trauma-informed model in your head as to why that behaviour has emerged, then you can misinterpret what the child's intentions are that if the child's been growing up and living in an environment where there's there's high degree of violence or unpredictability and they've needed to be hyper vigilant if they suddenly fly off the trigger you know instead of thinking he's just not um, behaving he's just trying to play up in the classroom rather than thinking actually you know this is simply a spillover from an adaptation in an environment where no it's not helpful mm. and 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 so therefore the adult tend to misinterpret that and perceive ill intent from the child when in fact it's a child just doing their best to survive and mm. um, and and it's difficult because teachers don't often get you know a training as part of their development around you know the impact of trauma how that can play out and the ways in which behaviors might manifest as a result
2: and i think there is also a kind of a even if you are somebody who is informed about how trauma potentially impacts a child there is still a real challenge in that you have to teach a class of 30 you can't teach a class of one there are 29 other children with their needs as well mm. and um, we were just discussing on our way in here today how increasingly because of the cuts to social welfare and social care and also to the I- because of the inadequate state of clinical services for children often schools are left to deal with a host of social and mental health problems that they are quite understandably not equipped to deal with and it's really not their place to deal with. They are there to educate the children and try to educate their children in in a kind of environment where children have um, the peace to sit down and learn and in some ways it would be very good to get services to schools because all children attend school, mm. it is an ideal environment to deliver services. But if, if this is uh, what is wanted, then there needs to be the investment to make that happen. And I am not sure how realistic or reasonable it would be to expect that a class teacher, even if they are informed and understanding about trauma history, is the person who ought to be then dealing with the child's very complex needs.
0: Does it tend to, do you tend to get more problems at secondary when when perhaps that the teacher knows the child less because they have a number of different teachers, perhaps the stresses or the, the, the triggers become more because the environment's a less safe environment, in secondary. I don't mean that in terms of violence, I mean that in terms of less nurturing, I guess. Or less structured. Less structured, yeah.
2: That could be, and I also think that, uh, of course, secondary coincides with adolescence as well. Mm. So the children are trying to find their place in the world. Um, they are engaging with all sorts of behaviours that denote independence but may not always be adaptive, such as alcohol and substance use. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, also get physically bigger, so they are um, m- they perhaps more able to um, act out some of the behavioural problems um, that, th- that they um, may have underlying. I think there are all sorts of reasons why at secondary school we see this increasing um, peak. Of, of problem behaviours. And of course, if you are somebody who is from a troublesome background, by secondary school you have spent more time in that troublesome background and mm-hmm. your uh, development has derailed increasingly over the years compared to your peers who have been able to take advantage of the education, who have been socialised in a typical way and who have had all sorts of emotional, physical and psychological needs met.
0: Did you, and you, you mentioned before that you, you scan teenagers, mm-hmm. uh, above the age of 10. <coughs> so you can actually see these changes in, in behavior in terms of uh, a biological level. Yeah.
1: <coughs> yes, we absolutely can. Um, we can see differences in brain structure. So different parts of the brain um, show subtle but but reliable differences in brain structure. But perhaps more interestingly, we see the way in which different neurocognitive systems function. So how a, a, you know, your brain signals the presence of threat, for example, And we've seen that's heightened in kids who've experienced physical abuse, even at the subliminal level when they've no conscious awareness Mm. of having perceived threat. We see differences in autobiographical memory functioning so that they often accord more salience to prior negative memories and kind of um, de-emphasize positive memories. And we know that's the kind of a a difference that we see in um, individuals at risk for depression. And we see that in terms of different neural structures that are signaling for example um, emotional salience which are heightened when they recall negative memories. Um, So we are able to measure these reliable differences but as Essay often (laughs) points out it's not at all surprising that you know we're able to detect differences in the brain because behaviors are different and experiences are different. So that's what the brain does. Um, and But it's important not to then overinterpret this. Oh my goodness, there's a biological difference, therefore.
2: Or it's brain damage, or which brain is damage. what Or brain damage. Exactly. The
1: historical is. narrative is that this mm. is damage. You know, but what we're seeing actually is that these changes are adaptive. They make sense. They actually reoriented how, how the brain functions in ways that allows them to be more effective in um, a particular environment. But those adaptations aren't so helpful, as I've said, in it, a school environment. But it, it also, because these changes are biological, doesn't mean that they're not malleable, yeah. that these systems can't recalibrate. They've changed in response to a set of environmental experiences. There's no reason why a new set of environmental experiences can't lead to new ca- recalibrations. So plasticity um, continues and is, is certainly within the frontal cortex ex, you know, evident well into an individual's um, early adulthood.
0: There's um, something I hear a lot in pupil referral units is that the w- why these these children tend to, to to thrive better in those environments is that um, the heads tell me they give them more chances. They so said you need to go back to these children five, six, seven times before you start seeing a change in behaviour. That would sort of fit with what you're saying. Is that is that a, is that a child sort of adapting, beginning to trust and beginning to understand that the environment is not one which you have to be hyper vigilant in, or this is. Th- are they learning a new way of behaving in that
2: sense? I. I'm not sure it's. Uh, there is going to be one way in which it's mm. happening. So for t- some children, I think that that's exactly what may be happening. They, they learn to trust. They, see the environment no longer as a threat. They can concentrate more on their, studies. They are monitoring the environment less. For other children, um, the, perhaps the callous, unemotional, uh, type. These are not threat reactive children. If in fact, if anything. They do not react uh, to threat in the same way as typical children. They also don't find other people's distress very aversive. So for those children, a change may simply be that they realize that it's better for them, better for looking after number one, okay. to behave in a certain way. So I, I'm, I would be very surprised if it, there is just one formula yeah. that works for all these children. It may be that different children Change their behaviour because of different uh, things in these sorts exactly. of settings, and I'm
1: sure teachers experience that, and people working in people referral units will know that. That some kids, you know, if you manage to establish a trusting relationship and a rapport, you know, that's a very strong foundation then for helping that child kind of reorient how they're um, behaving and how they're thinking about relationships in the world. And trust, we believe, is really a cornerstone of facilitating change, because trust is in a way the lens through which you learn that the world is different from how you thought and you you learn that through someone else's experience Um, so that becomes an important foundation but as as he says that's for one set of kids for whom that um, human relationship is the mechanism by which recalibration occurs but you can also recalibrate because you're changing how you're valuing different things in the world um, and how you're um, able to pursue and achieve your own self-interest Versus experiencing life in a way that you know feels really um, unpleasant.
0: Is there is there a one sort of behaviour policy that might help both those sets of children? I mean, the, the the narrative at the moment is that a very structured, very clear boundaries environment is you teach a child how to behave.
2: I think rewards that are, and this has been shown for a long time. Uh, so rewards that are applied immediately to reinforce good behavior can have um, a really good effect and we have certainly over the years worked with a number of uh, schools for children with behavioral and emotional difficulties and also with pupil referral units and uh, we've observed that there can be quite big differences between how the schools reward good behavior so in some schools the children collect points over quite a long period of time. And for some children, that is not very tangible. If the behavior is not rewarded immediately, and they go around with a little card, and then at the end of the week or end of the month, they may or may not get something, often the children with most trouble uh, planning ahead and regulating their behavior will not manage to do well in that sort of uh, reward program. Mm -hmm. Then we've worked with other schools where the rewards are immediate, at the end of the lesson or even several times during the lesson. And in those schools, I hear from teachers that they see quite good results, even with the more difficult children, because the children immediately make the connection between the good behavior and the reward. Uh, But rewards are something most most people like rewards, perhaps some very apathetic people don't, but most (laughs) people really like rewards. And that is something that's very, very salient and very helpful in reinforcing good behavior. It may not help someone feel empathetic. It may not uh, help someone to have the kind of what we would call morally right motivation for behaving well. But if we're just interested in someone behaving in a way that doesn't disrupt others and enables a good learning environment, rewarding good behavior really consistently and immediately um, seems to work well but it's hard and particularly if you have a number of very difficult children in the same setting and the progress in the behavior is very small you may need a number of different adults and you may even need somebody who in the first instance helps them monitor when you deliver that reward so this is not it's not an easy fix and I don't think that a teacher who's in charge of a big class could be blamed for not being able to do that consistently for one disruptive pupil while they're also trying to teach everybody else.
0: What about the flip side of that? What about punishment as an incentive? So we have a set of rules every time you go off this rules, you will go into detention or you will escalate that punishment. So detention, isolation, uh, fixed term exclusion. So
1: I think as you can say a little bit more about that in relation to children who have high levels of callous and emotional traits and those without. But it's just probably worth reflecting initially to think all of us respond differently to different kinds of rewards and different kinds of punishments. Mm. So for some people, you know, going to detention is no big deal. You know, you just get to do you know, a bit of quiet time. If you're growing up in a family home that's quite chaotic, you might think, yeah, that's not a bad place to be. Yeah. You know, so different kids will have different sensitivities, but that can also relate to kind of underlying genetic propensities.
2: Yes, and uh, and there is certainly some data that suggests that at least for children who have these high levels of callous and emotional traits, punishments are not as salient as they are for other children. Mm. So for these children, um, delivering rewards is much more likely to work well. And that can sometimes be very, very hard when a child behaves in a way that we find quite rightly morally outraging. Mm. The natural human impulse is to deliver a sanction at that point. This is how our societies are built. And I think one of the challenges in managing the most difficult children's behavior is, is not just delivering a reinforcement schedule for the minute bits of good behavior that they might manage, but it's also keeping the staff motivated and on board when they sometimes have to probably go against their own instinct when they feel very outraged, quite yeah. rightly, by the child's behavior. Um, But perhaps acting out on that outrage is not actually going to work in the long term for managing the behavior. And again, I think this highlights the challenge of uh, socializing individuals who are very, very tricky to socialize. I mean, as a parent, I think even bringing up relatively typical children can be very challenging at times. Um, And I think uh, bringing up children or educating children who have complex problems is a huge challenge, and it does require resources. And unless you are an absolute miracle worker, I don't think it's possible to do on your own while you're also trying to deliver teaching to a wider group of people in, in a school setting.
0: I think it's interesting as well that a teacher will be, you know, every person would be more sympathetic if we know there's a trauma. Okay, we know this trauma happened, maybe we can try and work around it. What you're talking about is a group of children who might not even have that trauma and to have sympathy for that child is difficult because then you're, well they're choosing to behave like that, but what you're saying is there might not be a degree of choice as such in that that dynamic.
2: Yes.
1: You've got to think what's your (coughs) objective, you know, is your objective to educate primarily to help children develop a set of behaviours that are respectful for others and also helpful for themselves. And if that's your objective, then whether you feel empathy or not, for those children almost becomes secondary, mm, absolutely. what matters is the outcome, mm. what matters is how you can help these kids develop in the most pro-social and, and socially appropriate ways.
0: It's interesting that the pro-social side of it, I guess part of this argument is these children are, are quite complex as you said for a teacher who's teaching 30 children to, to help and so these children tend to end up in uh, a unit of some sort, be it a people referral unit, a social, you know, SEMH unit, uh, where people like to think, oh, they, they're getting a better, that, that's more fitting for them. But in terms of the social aspects and the, the sort of messages you're giving a child by excluding them from the school, mm-hmm. there seems to be a tension between the two there that, yes, actually in a pro they might get a more personalised, possibly a stronger chance of building strong relationships but also you're giving them a message that you're not welcome in this mainstream bit which may be more or less damaging i don't know but there's a tension there i think
2: there there is a tension, but i also think there is a reality in that you can't scupper education for 29 children Mm. because there is a one child who is currently unable to engage in mainstream education so i think the aim ought to be that yes these children should have specialist provision, but with the view that they can be reintegrated back into the mainstream provision. And at the moment, I think that that is very, very difficult in in the um, British school system. There are some schools that we work with um, that do um, very much have that goal and, and also have been very proactive and innovative in a, in a kind of provision that would help this goal, including an Anna Freud um, family school where they involve parents in the school activities. Um, so this family school essentially has parents and teachers in the same page working with the child. Parents sometimes come to the school to work with the child. And this school, as far as I know, has very good track record of integrating children back into the main. Stream school after a time um, in their specialist um, service. But there aren't many units like that around.
0: I was going to say, and I think, I guess the problem is that we look at special education needs as a group, we can intervene with dyslexia or autism, and we have mm-hmm. this sort of very well built outreach program. And I know Senko's will be screaming at, the, at their, uh, whatever's playing their, this podcast and saying, well, the funding's not there. But it seems to me that if you look at the sort of problems you're talking about, there's, there's, there's even less help for these kids yeah there's,
1: there's very little and, and the, the kind of split that you described uh, initially was you know you've got um, mainstream and then you've got specialists. you know there's very little in the middle. I think what the family school shows that if you do invest resources, you might be able to help kids before problems become entrenched, before they have really escalated to a severe state where they have to really be within a very specialized environment. You can help a lot of children you know, turn around with some intensive um, intervention and support um, with the aim of reintegrating them back into mainstream. You know, that I think should be the primary aim. But you're right, it takes resources, it takes additional um, training, and it takes um, models of schools that are quite rare. The family school is, I think, quite unique in in terms of of how they approach this to ensure that kids can get back into mainstream. And there's going to be a longer-term economic benefit because it's very expensive have children in these very specialist um, kind of schools and we want and there's also a social cost as you say as kids feel excluded they feel different you know they're losing out in kind of more normative socialization so there does need to be significantly more resources at that earlier stage when the kid is at risk of exclusion and how they could be supported how the family could be engaged in the system around the child to reintegrate them back into mainstream
0: do, t- do you think teachers have enough you mentioned before that in terms of trauma-aware teaching, that, that that's a training angle, but also a lot of teachers don't, I guess, get to know the full extent of a child's history. Mm-hmm. So exploring the sort of, you know, the techniques and saying, oh, this child might have some trauma, we need to get an intervention in place here, how you would, you know, you can't do a, like a diagnostic test for trauma, mm-hmm. like I guess, like you can for dyslexia, this mm-hmm. child's struggling to read, let's get intervention in place. Your only si- real signifier, I guess, is a, a child playing up in certain ways. Mm. Are there certain behavior, behaviors that would give you a good guess that that's what's going on?
1: Well, one thing mm. um, that we're hoping to launch um, in the near future at the Anna Freud Center is something called the National Trauma Center. And we've recently done a large survey of people who are working in education. And there's a huge need for people to have you know, accessible, um, trusted resources that could guide them in terms of thinking about the kind of behaviours associated with trauma and simple steps that they might be able to take to approach that. Because there's so little resources out there that have been developed Mm. for people working um, within schools and and for teachers in particular. So that's hopefully going to be one of the first objectives of of this new initiative, to really try and um, provide accessible resources and also training for teachers and, and frontline professionals working in schools. Because it is difficult, and you're right, that often you've got a very limited picture of what the child's background and history might be. So you're, it's a bit of guesswork. Mm. But nonetheless, you know, teachers get to know their kids. They get to kind of know, you know, a kid who's clearly unhappy at home, and and they can make some, you know, hypotheses about what might be going on there. But um, you're right, it's always going to be a bit of a, um, a tricky computation to make, and hard to be precise. Um, but they will be able to gauge enough I think to be able to think about that child and, and, and whether they may need further help or further support because as, as he often says the, there's just not enough resources for that teacher to be the person to solve things yeah. but they may be able to signpost and um, facilitate that that young person getting um, additional help but it might also change the teacher's response because you know being really irritated because a child is behaving in a certain way versus you know, being sympathetic or being concerned, all depends on how you interpret the behavior. Yeah. So if you switch that, that can make the whole experience more um, more possible to sustain. And so, I mean, trauma has always exist in young people's lives.
0: Why is the education system not al- already very good at this? Is the research relatively new? Is the are we just still learning the impacts, or is the translation from academia to education not been as smooth as it perhaps could have been? Well, I think,
1: I mean, I grew up at a time when you know corporal punishment still existed Mm -hmm. in Northern Ireland. You know, kids were excluded, kids left school. You know, I think this idea that there was once a time when everything was somehow dealt with, there was also a clarity that you know at that time in terms of societal consensus that schools were where children were educated and that is um, was the function of the school and that has shifted in the last 10-20 years that the school is serving a broader function and that as teachers will know you know there's much more on their shoulders about the social and emotional development of children as well as their education and that's a pressure because there's more expectation um, but without, to without
2: necessarily the, resource the, the resources to, to facilitate it.
1: And of course, the, you know, the Green Paper outlines a number of initiatives and plans to try and embed more mental health provision within schools. But we're at very early days in terms of seeing that um, come to reality. But there's a plan to develop a training for um, education um, practitioners who would be based in schools to help facilitate at least the low level kinds of behavioral and emotional problems that children might present with.
0: The first sort of triage. Do you think that's workable in the sense that it seems an impossibly broad set of training for a a single person to deal with this and then all the other elements that that could come into that? Is is a triage role there workable, like realistic?
1: I think it's part of a bigger solution. You know, one person isn't going to solve the the complexities in the school. But equally, someone who's got a dedicated role and, and training and support to so at rather least than it
2: being the teacher, there ought to be someone else. Mm. And that someone yeah. else
1: might just be able to deal with the low level initial problems. Um, but there will need to be then, you know, additional services and sources of referral for those children who present with more complex and enduring problems. So it needs to be a hierarchy. But coming back to this idea that schools are doing much more than edu- educating kids, they're having to think about the social and emotional welfare and development. We need to build in structures within schools to facilitate that, to support the teachers, um, to support um, the children, to to manage that expectation and have the resources to, to deal with problems when they emerge.
2: And I, I certainly regularly get quite... Um, angry on teachers behalf because I'm thinking that there's expectation upon expectation heaped upon them um, but actually no extra resources to facilitate all this multiple myriad role of yeah. schools <laughs> that is seem to be cropping up um, and we also know that there have been substantial impacts of austerity on all the most vulnerable children and families And the schools are picking up those pieces and they're having to deliver on educational outcomes that they monitored on Um, they are expected to pick up uh, the mental health care and you know i have um, teacher friends who bring breakfast to school Mm. with their own money to the children because the government is failing the most vulnerable families at the moment and i think there are all sorts of ideal things that we could do at schools but they cannot be done without the funding
0: you cannot fix a a systemic problem no
2: Mm. they can't and it's extremely and i I often think that they are actually a very convenient scapegoat that then um essentially deflects the attention from the real problems Mm. Uh, why aren't schools helping these children read and behave and all these things and you think well because the children are only there for a very short period of time and then they go back to extremely difficult circumstances
0: and the more you more you look at the different areas of complexity of a child. I mean, this this is perhaps just one area of complexity for that child. They may have confounding elements like SEN. Mm-hmm. They might have different things going on. So the, mm-hmm. that is, is tricky. I mean, if you if, if if there was one message for teachers, then would it would it be that to, to to look at behaviour not as a, as a choice? I mean, there seems to be a a movement now to say a child is beho- choosing to behave in a certain way, and so we must change their their choice structure. Sounds to me like it may be a choice, but that choice is underpinned by potentially very complex or very uh, persuasive elements of their character, or, or even their biology,
2: or even their learning history. Mm. What other things that worked in the past? Mm. So I think we all we all make choices, but I think that um, the tools that we bring to making the choices are different. Mm. So somebody who has very stable um, developmental history, who has capacity to regulate their emotions, is making a particular choice with a completely different toolkit than a child who has unpredictable developmental history Mm -hmm. and who is not good at regulating their emotions. Both children are making a choice, but their readiness to make a good choice is different. And one of those children will need more scaffolding than the other child.
1: And in addition, not just having a different toolkit, they have learnt that the world is a certain way.
2: Absolutely. And they need
1: to learn that the world could be a different way. Mm. So they need to learn that adults can be reliable, because they've learnt that they aren't reliable. They need to learn that if they do something well, they will be rewarded. Mm. And it won't be, they won't be neglected or ignored or punished. You know, they need to learn that they can trust adults so those things take time and it's about the child learning that the world can be different from the world that they've experienced today so it's a bit of a double whammy that they're needing to learn about the world being able to be different and not having the tools to allow them to do that Mm. so teachers are you know it's incredibly challenging they need to be able to stick with the kid and I'm sure many teachers will have experienced kids and, and seen that change happening and then for other kids it just doesn't happen it just doesn't seem to get through um, and but we need to think about ways of helping those kids where the kind of help child, um, teachers can give just won't be enough. They need additional support, and they often need work with the family and the system around the child because working with the child in isolation isn't going to solve the problem. The problem isn't the child. The problem isn't just sort of somehow embedded in the child. it's in the system around the child, it's in the family network and the community network around the child that also needs to be part of the solution.
0: And I guess to finish, it's worth going back to the the point you made initially that, be it trauma or be it uh, a genetic trait that increases their risk, these aren't uh, these aren't issues that cannot be remedied. It, Absolutely, it, there's no yeah. sort of one way path for these children. No, there's there is no really one isn't. way path, and
1: no. we see that when you look at the longitudinal studies, you see a lot of children who experience trauma don't develop a mental health problem, mm. you and know. you see
2: lots of children who have behavioural problems in one time point, and then they grow out of those behavioural result. problems. I mean, brain is a learning organ, yeah. so it's not fixed. Mm. It's not fixed even at, uh, at over 40. So uh, essentially, we just need to think how we can support adaptive learning, both in the social domain and also in the educational domain for these children. It is challenging, but with the right resources, it is possible.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much, Bob. That was really interesting.